Hello, everyone. Isn't God good? Isn't it great to be able to spend the time sharing together and celebrating how good he is? So um, we're going to read some of the Bible. Uh, James chapter 1. Okay, so James chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, has, when it has its full effect, gives you perfection and completeness, so that you lack nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask with faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven back and forth, tossed by the wind. For that person must suppose that he will receive nothing from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Thank you, Phil. Well, good morning, Bergen Park Church. Wow, it was good. Hey, it is good to be here this Sunday. If you haven't met me, my name is Jason, and today I have the privilege, the honor to be the pastor at Bergen Park Church, and really to build on the foundation that Jim, your pastor Jim, has done a fantastic job to lay a foundation here with his wife Barb and his family to make an impact in Evergreen for the gospel, to build this fantastic facility. Amen and to gather us together. And so I'm excited today to begin to get to know you. You know, in the coming weeks, I hope, I think there's a sign-up sheet. I'm looking for Brian. Is Brian out here? There he is. Brian, is it out there? There is a sign-up sheet out in the lobby area, and there's some times on there where we could connect. I'd love to have the opportunity, if possible, to connect with each family that's represented here. There's hour slots that you could sign up on, and we could find an opportunity just to get to know each other. Ask you a few questions about your commitment and your connection to Bergen Park, and then also uh, maybe share a little bit about who we are and uh, and what God may do. What do you think? That sound good. So take that opportunity as you uh, step out today to uh, to sign up in one of those spots. So Texas, a lot of things have been going on in Texas. If you know, we come from Arlington, Texas, and Hurricane Harvey has come in and, and made a mess if you've got family, friends, the Houston area, the Gulf Coast, then today is the National Day of Prayer for the Gulf Coast. A lot of my friends I went to Baylor University are pastors and, and also attending churches in the Houston area. And one of my friends, a man named Robbie C., who's a worship leader and pastor in Houston, uh, posted this video yesterday, and I want you to watch this. If you've been looking for a place to, to uh, maybe give funds or or serve in some way, uh, this might be a great opportunity. So if you want to put that video up. Hey, y'all, Robbie C. here in Houston. Uh, I'm with Bayou City Fellowship, one of our pastors, and wanted to send a quick video that just said, number one, thank you. We had hoped to do a personal greeting to each of you, but so many churches responded that this will be a general greeting, but it's a sincere one. And uh, just wanted you to know that even if you're hundreds of miles away or thousands of miles away and you feel somewhat helpless, you've been watching the news and... Uh, I just wanted you to know that in these ways, you and I get to link arms with our, our churches together and be the hands and feet of Jesus in these neighborhoods for people who are really hurting and who've been devastated uh, by uh, Harvey. 
uh, listen, we'll be feeding a thousand meals a, a day ongoing. Uh, we'll be sending dozens of teams every day back into neighborhoods every morning. Uh, we have a, a warehouse here that's stocked with supplies and equipment that's devoted just to Harvey Relief. We're housing dozens of families who've been displaced. All of that is made possible uh, by our partnerships. And I want you to know that 100% of what you give towards Bayou City Fellowship this weekend, 100% will go to families in need. We have no overhead here. Uh, and so all of it will go to meet the needs of the city. And so we're grateful. Would you continue to pray for us as we serve? And, and really, we serve together. If you're a part of a team that could potentially come in the, in the coming weeks, we would love to have you. And so I'm sure your pastor could speak to that some more. But God bless you. Please continue to pray for Houston, Texas. So that's Robbie C. at Bayou City Fellowship. And I'm just presenting this to you as an opportunity. There's many great organizations that are ministering the Houston area. But this is one, one I'm connected to, and I know Robbie C. from college, friends that go way back. And so if that's something you want to connect to, please speak to me, or you can go to Bayou City Fellowship, uh, donate there, and make an impact in the city of Houston. Hey, today we're walking through the book of James, and as it is, uh, we go through James. James is about trials. It's about hardship. It's about uh, unexpected events like hurricanes that come in and reorganize, change your life in what used to be normal, what you anticipated to be your life is no longer your life, and instead things look a lot different. And so as we walk through the book of James, we're going to jump into a book that is called Wisdom Literature. It's unlike any book in the New Testament, because actually it's more like the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. That James is writing in the tradition of the book of Proverbs, and he's taking the truth that Jesus taught in the Gospels of Mark and Matthew and Luke and John, and he's applying that truth to everyday life. Because God's desire for us is that we would glorify Him, not just on Sunday, and not in just this window of time, but that we would learn to glorify God in the everyday stuff of life. So that as God sends us out into, whether it's Denver or Evergreen or whatever community you live in that I need to learn about, you would glorify Him and spread His presence to every person that you meet. See, we want to glorify God in the everyday stuff of life. And so James is writing this, and before we jump in, I think it's really vital that we learn a little bit about the author. And James is a fascinating, fascinating character in the New Testament, simply because he likely slept in the same bed with Jesus. Now, Jesus was God. Your brother may have claimed to be God, but Jesus was God. And so you can imagine, what would it be like to, to grow up with Jesus? to play soccer with Jesus, to be a carpenter alongside Jesus. Well, James grew up with Jesus, and you would think that if you grew up with Jesus, I mean, he could raise the dead, he could multiply fish, he could do a lot of great things, uh, you would probably believe at an early age. And yet, we discover in, in books like John and John chapter 7 that James, his family, did not believe in Jesus. In fact, uh, when they heard about Jesus and knew what he was doing, they, they thought that maybe Jesus had lost his mind, that he was, he was crazy. And see, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that it wasn't until Jesus met with James personally in a one-on-one -on -one encounter after the resurrection that James devoted his life and he became a follower, a disciple, one who follows after Jesus. Now, when James gave his life to Jesus, I don't know if this is your story, things didn't get better, they got a lot worse. 
We may think, you know, if you trust Jesus, that means everything's going to go great, right? Give your life to God and God's just going to make everything smooth. But for James, that wasn't the story. Instead, his life really went into a period of trial and hardship and persecution as the church began to grow and the Jewish community didn't support Jesus as the Messiah. And the Romans started putting their weight on the church in the New Testament. There was great persecution and James suffered to the point that in the year 62 A.D., James was taken to the top, as tradition says, of the temple in Jerusalem. I guess there was a ladder that got up there somehow, maybe a hole in the roof. They got up on the roof somehow, whatever that looked like, and they said to James, you must deny Jesus Christ and stop preaching the gospel, or we're going to throw you off. And James said no. And as the story goes, he was thrown off, and James died a martyr's death. So see, James knows how to speak to the suffering and the hardship of life. And so as we jump in this book, I hope you'll bring your Bible each week, or it's okay if you turn it on. That's fine, too. I love to see the glow of God's Word in your face (laughs) as we study this book together. Because see, as James says in verse 2, we are to count it joy. Count it joy, my brothers, my family, whenever we face trials of many kinds. You know, the Bible teaches us, and Old Testament, New Testament, throughout the scriptures, that God uses suffering to change us. Now, if you turn, if you want to turn to 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, Peter writes the same thing, and Peter is writing a church that was heavily persecuted under Nero in the first, uh, first hundred years of the church. And James writes this, He says, in this you rejoice, meaning in your salvation you rejoice. But listen, now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So he says, though we rejoice that Jesus has saved us, life has trials. But listen to why he says these trials have come. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, Though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You see, there's something greater at stake than our comfort. What is greater at stake is the glory of God. And see, Peter is writing with people who are suffering, who are going through hardships, and he's saying to them, if you suffer well, your faith will be tested like Gold through the fire. And when Jesus Christ returns, you're going to celebrate because your life is going to be poured out in praise and glory and honor to Him. You know, Paul in Romans chapter 5 says something very, very similar. He says in Romans 5, if I can look at it there, Romans 5 verse 3, he says, not only that, but we rejoice, just as James says, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces perseverance or endurance, Endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God uses suffering to test us, but to strengthen us and to try us. Now, for anyone in this room that has a close, intimate walk with God, I'll tell you one thing. Though the trials they have gone through may not be something they want to go through again, What they will say is through that experience, God became more real in their life. 
Now, you would think for a lot of people, when you go through hardships, the things that bring you joy, maybe it's wealth, it's pleasure, it's all sorts of different things, but when you go through suffering and hardship, often the things that brought you joy in life become less meaningful in some ways. They don't meet the same needs. Money doesn't meet that same need when you're going through suffering. It doesn't have that same pleasure and joy. Rather, what James is going to show us is that when we go through suffering, the things of Christ, the things of the gospel, they don't become less real. Rather, your, j- your greatest joy becomes more tangible, more real. And God meets us in the very place of our need. You know, one of my favorite authors... You may know him from the Chronicles of Narnia. If you've seen the movie, he didn't do the movie. He died a long, a long time before that. But his name is C.S. Lewis, and he wrote a great book called The Problem of Pain. And in it, he describes our suffering this way. I quote, he says, Let me implore you, the reader, to try to believe, if only for a moment, that God who made these deserving people may really be right when he thinks that their modest prosperity... The happiness of their children are not enough, listen, to make them blessed. That all this must fall from them in the end if they have not learned to know Him. If they have not learned to know Him, they will truly be wretched. And therefore He troubles them, warning them in advance of an insufficiency that one day they will have to discover. The life to themselves and their family stands between them and the recognition of their greatest need. He makes that life less sweet to them. You see, God will have us, even though we have shown that we prefer everything else to Him. God often uses suffering to show us just how precious He is. Now, as we walk through James, if you notice in verse 2, He says, consider it joy. Now, if you went down to Houston right now and you said to those folks that were going through those difficult times, consider it joy, Christian to non-Christian, they wouldn't respond well. And I imagine in your suffering and your trials, neither would you. And so what is James saying when when he says consider it joy? Well, notice he says consider it joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, if you have a translation here, do any translation say if you face trials of various kinds. No. Because trials are not electives. Trials are the main course of life. To be alive is either to be in a trial, to be looking at a trial, or just coming out of a trial. That trials in life are inevitable. Now, I have to warn you, because there are those who will teach, if you have enough faith, if your faith is of the quality that impresses God, you will not go through trials. Instead, life will be prosperity and health and wealth, and all things will be good. The challenge with that is it didn't work for Jesus, it didn't work for James, it didn't work for Peter, it didn't work for the first 300 years of the church. It just doesn't work. No, trials are inevitable. And I appreciate that James says there are trials of various kinds. Because what may be a trial to me may just be a bad morning to you. And what may be a trial in your life, I could look at and say, you know, that's just so insignificant. And yet he tells us, a trial's come in various kinds. I know for my kids, last couple weeks, their trial was walking into a new school. Have you been there? 
You move into a new community, a new neighborhood. You're expecting to see your friends, but none of your friends are there. None of the administrators and teachers. Everybody is new. You walk in, and you've got to walk in with faith that God is with you. That is a trial. Marriage. Marriage is a trial. Yeah. And when she says, man, this, this will help you because I, I, I failed on this. When she says it's a trial, man, it's a trial. <laughs> Are you with me? Don't try to compare the magnitude of your trial with what you may perceive as the smallness of hers. If she calls it a trial, listen, James is saying there are various kinds. It doesn't matter about the magnitude. Instead, husbands, what we are to do is not lead her to her weakness, but lead her to her Savior. And likewise, wives, don't lead your husband to his weakness. Hey, buck up, buddy. Toughen up. That's life. Don't lead him to save himself. Lead him to his Savior. Because what James is teaching us is not be stoic, be tough, just endure, put your head through the brick wall. No, he's saying, I'm going to show you a process in which in your trials, how you can turn to your Savior. Because our Savior is not just our Savior in terms of heaven. Listen, he's your Savior in terms of life. And if you're going to face life well, you've got to have the wisdom to live that wisdom out in the everyday stuff of life. And so what James is going to do in verses 2 through 4 is he's going to give us a process. Now, this is not a technique. It's not a pill. It's not a prayer that you can pray. And if I just pray this, if I do this right, then everything is going to work out well. Rather, what growth in the Christian life is, is it's a process. It's the process of walking with God in the everyday events of life. And so he's going to say that trials lead to joy. The first thing in this process, he says, is that trials can lead to joy. Now, we wonder, how could that be possible? Well, again, he's not saying that there is joy in pain. We're not masochists. This isn't the Illuminati. We're not trying to enjoy the pain of life. And so there's no joy in pain. And likewise, he's not saying to us, let's pretend to be joyful. Have you been in that church? You know they're going through hardships, struggles, difficulties, but instead of crying, hey, let's just laugh. Let's push down the emotions. Let's pretend as if everything is good. So when we come to church, let's look like we're put together. Let's not show people what's really going on in our life. No, he's not telling us to ignore. Rather, what he's going to do is something remarkable. He's going to say, when you're going through hardships, what you need to do is to think. So often people say the Christian life is not a thinking life. It's a blind faith. You heard that? Don't believe it. What he says is consider it joy. Count it joy. Meaning when trials come, what you need to do is not run, not trust your doubts, not run to pleasure or comfort, but rather you need to stop and think. And what he's going to say we're going to think about is a process that God has given us to know that God is at work in our lives. And he's going to call us to think about two things. You're going to see this as we go through the book of James. He's going to call us, first of all, to think about who God is. And second, he's going to say, think about what God is doing in your life right now. And those are important points. First of all, when we're going through trials, to think about who God is. And second, to think about what God is doing in your life. 
Because as you go through trials, you may often feel exposed. You may feel weak. Obviously, you'll often feel as if the resources you have are not enough to meet the challenges ahead. And so what you need is not to be stronger. You need someone who is stronger. You need to find your strength, not in yourself, but instead he's going to say, find your strength in God. And it's interesting, if you look down in verse 5, he calls God, in verse 5, the one who is generous. When you're in lack and you're in want... Do you want to go to the God who is generous? Absolutely. And he's saying in the midst of your want, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your emptiness, know that the God that we worship on Sunday morning is a God of great generosity. That gives us confidence, not in myself. It gives my confidence in that God is going to meet my needs according to what he wants for me. Now, I love how Paul says, if you want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. In 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He calls the Father of mercies and, listen, the God of all comfort. Now, why would Paul say the God of all comfort? Because that church was going through trials. And he's saying to them, Know that the God that you worship is a God of comfort. He is a God of mercy. Verse 4, who comforts us in our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we are comforted by God. What we consider in our trials is who God is. We're going to see this throughout this series. But second, you need to consider and count what God is doing in your life. Everyone in this room is an interpreter of facts. Now, we like to believe our interpretation is the right interpretation, right? A set of events happen and we feel like we, you know, we've been to school. I've got a master in divinity, whatever that means. And so I know how God works. And maybe you're in that similar place in life. You've got a lot of experience and so you see events. And when suffering comes into life, what do you do? You don't just look at the facts. You make interpretations based on the facts. And I imagine if you're anything like me, you start to ask questions. Because what trials do is they expose us. They force us to begin to ask questions. And so James says, before you run, before you go back to the things you did when you were in high school, before you go back to things you did in college, before you go back to all the things that are really ruining and wrecking life, stop. Don't run like Jonah. Don't run like Peter. There's a lot of good runners in the Bible. Rather, stop and consider who is God. And then ask the question, what right now is God doing in my life? And James is going to show us, this is what God is doing. Notice what he says. He says, count it all joy. Now, the it is the process. The it is what God is doing. Count it all joy. And he says, let steadfastness finish its work. Meaning that what we need to do in the face of adversity is we need to stop, but then we need to pick up the lens of faith. I don't know about you, I don't often think of life just through the lens of faith. I tend to think of life through the lens of Jason. I tend to see life in terms of what works for me, what I want, what I desire, and I'm a pastor, and still I sin just like you. Now, he tells us in the midst of trials what we need to do is to put on the lens of faith. What is the lens of faith? Have you ever in a trial or in pain 
found yourself at a place where you believe that God does not love you? I'll be the first to say absolutely. There are many times in the midst of pain where I believe, you know, God, if you love me, this is a sorry way to love someone. I could think of a lot better ways to love me some me. What are you doing? Well, when you put on the lens of faith, because he says trials test your faith, what you do is you got to put on the lens of faith. And the lens of faith says Jesus Christ, who is in very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. Philippians 2, but he became a servant. He suffered on our behalf. And if God, who is that glorious, Jesus, who is that magnificent, was willing to sacrifice himself for you, the one thing your trials cannot mean is that God does not love you. Why? Because look at the depths to which Jesus was willing to go. And if Jesus was willing to step outside of heaven and the angels and all, I don't even know what that is, but it sounds good, and become a man and sacrifice himself on our behalf, the one thing, trust me, that suffering and pain cannot mean, it cannot mean that God does not love us. But see, that doesn't come through the interpretation of my heart. It comes through the lens of faith. And what the Holy Spirit does is he allows that to come into your heart and it gives you peace, not because life has changed, but because you know God, who God is. And listen, you know what God is doing in your life. You with me? Trials, they show us who he is. Now he says what trials produce, if you notice, he says, and let steadfastness. Now what is steadfastness? Now to understand what that is, because it doesn't sound very exciting, does it? You know, go home today if your wife's not here. Say, honey, hey, we're going through a trial. Guess what's on the other side? Steadfastness. Yeah, it didn't meet, it didn't meet my needs either. No, he says steadfastness. Now, what is that? Now, the opposite of it, often I like to see the opposite of something to understand what it is. Well, James describes the opposite of what is steadfast, if I can find it. If you look down in verse 8, 7 and 8, he talks about... The one that doubts is like a wave, blown and tossed by the wind. That the opposite of being steadfast is to be a wave in the midst of a storm. That when the trials of life come, what that means, what it looks like to me, is that you don't know where to run. Hey, I'm going to try some Jesus, now I'm going to try some pleasure. I'm going to try some comfort, now I'm going to go back to God. I'm going to go to church, now I'm not going to go to church, I'm going to go run. We don't know where to go. You're tossed back and forth. You're like a child that doesn't know what what he needs, but he wants everything at the same time. Often our desires conflict. And so what is steadfast? It means not to be double-minded. Rather, the word steadfast in the Greek is a word that means to stand strong. I don't like to use Greek words too often, but if this is an important one. It's this, this word hupomeno. Hupo, from which we get an English word hyper. Meno means to stand. So steadfastness means to hyperstand. Now, forgive me, but this is the image in my mind. A 500-pound man in his underwear. Now, technically, it's called sumo wrestling, but it looks like underwear to me. When a sumo wrestler starts a match, you see what they do is they hyperstand. He doesn't just stand, does he? He hyperstands. Because he knows in front of him is a 500-pound beast. And his desire is to run him right out of that ring. He doesn't just stand. No, he's immovable. He places his feet in such a way that whatever is coming in his path, he's going to stand. Now, maybe that doesn't work for you. So let me give you this. 
Thanksgiving. Relatives, you're walking into the house. Do you need to hyperstand? If you have that relative, you do. If you have that Aunt Ethel, and I apologize if your name is Ethel, <laughs> that Uncle Phil or that cousin that just, you know, he wants to talk about how goofy Jesus is, and yeah. You walk in that door, what do you got to do? You've got to hyperstand. You can't just stand. You've got to prepare yourself. You've got to know who I am. I'm loved by my family. I don't need to prove to Phil or Ethel or anybody else that Jesus is who he says he is. I'm going to hyperstand, meaning I'm going to ground myself. Now, what you're grounding yourself in is not in yourself, but as James says, you're grounding yourself in who God is and what he's done. Maybe you've had this experience. It's a Monday. You're driving into work. You get a text. Proposal has failed. The team blew it. The letter you sent, email you sent to the client, they're offended. And so therefore your boss is livid. How do you walk into that office on Monday morning? You better hyperstand. You better know who you are. You better be humble before that, that man who hired you. And you better know that my provider is not me, it's God. God, you're my provider, and no matter what happens today, I want to walk in integrity. The only way we can do that is we have to be grounded in the midst of our trials and who God is and what God is doing in our life. And what God does in our trials is he causes us to become firm, strong, immovable. And listen, not because you are strong, but because Jesus Christ is strong. You know, Jesus used a great illustration. He said, imagine a house. And let's say the construction of the house is great. It's the best house ever built. And yet it's built on the sand. It doesn't matter how well that house is built. If it's on the sand, it's going to fall. But then imagine just a rickety house, but that house has got a firm foundation. That house is strong. Not because of the house necessarily, but the foundation. Listen. The strength of faith is not in you. Do you know that? The strength of faith is always the object of faith. And if the object of your faith is Jesus Christ, you're going to be strong. Not because somehow you're stoic and you've overcome all these obstacles. No, you're strong because Jesus Christ is strong. And you're not grounding yourself in the now. You're not grounding yourself in pleasure or money or success. You're grounding yourself in the eternal God who has loved you and sacrificed for you. Church, are we willing to ground ourselves in the midst of trials in Jesus Christ? If your faith is in Jesus, church, you will be strong. And out of that, what does God produce? Well, one last thing, if you notice. He says, and steadfastness must complete. Meaning, don't, don't walk away, don't run in the midst of the process. Don't give up, don't stop praying, don't stop coming to church. Be honest with one another when you go through challenges, and maybe you've got to find that one person you can be honest with, but let steadfastness finish its work. And here's the outcome. Perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Do you see that? The outcome is that you would be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. Now that sounds pretty good. Now, what does it mean? It doesn't mean whatever you want it to mean. There's a lot of teachers, again, who will take a verse like this 
And they'll say, if you have enough faith, you're never going to lack a thing. Enough success, enough money, enough pleasure, enough life. Well, listen, that message isn't about God, it's about you. And when life is just about us, we are weak. But when life is about Christ and God and what God has done, we are strong. Because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so what is it that God wants to bring into our lives? The word he uses is perfect. I love this word in the Greek. It's this word teleos. And it's not just perfect in the way that I want to be perfect or how I want people to view me. Teleos means perfect according to its purpose. Now, this microphone is perfect according to its purpose to the degree that it picks up my voice. These speakers are perfect according to its purpose and that they broadcast sound. And this podium is perfect according to its purpose in that it holds whatever I place on it. But if this podium wants to be a microphone or a speaker, no matter how well he does, it's not going to meet its purpose. And so what James is saying, what God is saying, is when we go through trials, what God does is he, he works in our life in such a way that we become more and more the person that God has created us to be. We become the person God desires us to be. Trials refine us to discover our identity. Now, last thing, if you look in verse 1, here's your identity, and this is the only title that James gives himself. And if you remember, James was the brother of Jesus. That's a pretty big deal. Leader of the first century church, the fastest growing church. Incredibly successful, but notice what he calls himself in verse 1. He doesn't say James the pastor, James the leader, James the great brother of Jesus. He says James, a servant of Jesus Christ, of God and of Jesus Christ. See, what trials do in our life is they perfect us as servants of God. They perfect us to be exactly what God intended us to be which is not independent but dependent, and to be a reflection of God's glory to the world around us. You know, that word servant can also be translated slave. And a slave in the New Testament wasn't like the slavery necessarily that we understand in the United States that had to deal with race. Some people would actually voluntarily step into slavery as a means of getting out of debt or improving their life. But when you gave yourself over to someone, you were a bondservant. You were committed. Your life was no longer your own. Instead, you now entrusted your life to someone else. And see, James is saying the purpose of life and the purpose of trials is that more and more we'd become, listen, like the ultimate servant, who is Jesus Christ, who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, what is God doing in your life? He wants to perfect you as a servant. You know, today we're going to celebrate communion, so we have to ask the question, where does our strength come from? One last verse I want to share with you in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. In Hebrews 12, verse 2, it says this, In looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him. What joy was there for Jesus in the cross? Was it the joy of suffering and physical pain? Was it the joy of being separated from family? There was no joy in going to the cross. You see, Jesus, just like us, endured trials. The way he endured trials is the same way that we endure trials. 
by setting our heart on the joy of what God is going to produce after our suffering. Notice, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, you notice that word endured the cross. You know what that word is? Hupo meno. He stood fast. Why? Because God loved you. The only way we're going to be strong in trials is we have to be broken by the Jesus Christ who stood strong in his trial for us and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. Are you with me? Our strength doesn't come from ourselves. It comes from seeing the one who is perfect in every way. And yet he poured out his life unto us and unto death so that we might become the servants of God. I want to pray for us, and I'm going to invite um, those that are going to be serving communion today to come forward. And if you've received Jesus Christ, communion's open to you. The communion is not just a symbol, it's an experience. It's a way of taking the gospel of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and making it real to us. That we know today we are not accepted because of what we do. We're accepted, the gospel says, solely because of what Jesus Christ has done. That's grace. And when we come to the communion table, we reflect. We say, Father, if there's anything in me, anything that needs to change, anything that needs to be set aside, Lord, would you show me what it is? And maybe today, as we've looked at this passage, it could be questions that you have. Questions about God's goodness or God's greatness. And before you come forward, I'd encourage you just to spend some time in prayer. I say, Lord, I'm struggling with your goodness today. I find that I run after things that I replace you with because I think I'll find goodness in them instead of you. Or God, I'm struggling because I don't think you're great. I constantly need to take control of my own life and manipulate things to work out the way that I want. Or God, I don't think you're gracious, meaning I don't think you love me and accept me through Jesus Christ. Before you come to the table, would you please just examine your heart and allow the Holy Spirit to begin to speak to you. I'm going to pray, and as I do with those that are going to serve, come forward. Don't worry, if I'm praying, you can walk on up. And then when it's the right time, would you come forward? You'll take the bread and dip it in the cup, and then go back to your seat. Let's celebrate together. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that as James describes your character, he calls you the generous one. That in our lack, Father, in our need, you want to pour out grace to us. You tell us that you give us more grace, that when we are weak and broken, you do not despise us. You do not cast us down for not having enough faith. Rather, you constantly desire to magnify how great you are and show us you are good and we can find all goodness in you. Help us, Father, today as we come to the communion table to reflect on where we are, to confess our need for you. And Father, would you meet us here today in Jesus' name? Amen. Let's celebrate what God has done.